the real story when it comes to like responsible business practices for us, the real story is being honest with our consumers about things, educating our consumers about things, particularly consumer behavior. That is the way to make change, in my opinion. What we buy says a lot about who we are and what we value. My name is Jeremy Kirkland, and this is Blamo. My guest this week is Brendan Bobenzine, founder of Noah and former creative director of Supreme. And since recording this, the new J. Crew Men's creative director. Jeez, is that enough? Legend. Brendan and I chat about growing up in the suburbs of New York in the 1970s, the massive music scene of the era, and getting into skateboarding at a young age. Most importantly, Brendan lets us in on what he thinks a brand should be and how he's trying to create a legacy while still operating responsibly with human rights and the environment informing his decision-making. Plus, we get his take on how Noah is trying to educate consumers to want less. This is one of the most enlightening conversations we've had this season with the real source of menswear and fashion. Let's dive in. It's interesting because I think Noah obviously is a clothing brand and you guys make fantastic clothes. Your taste is next level. It's it's beautiful. I mean, the stores are incredible. But Noah to me, and I think to a lot of other people, I have friends that work at Nike, I have friends that work at Patagonia. Um, Noah's become the new sort of like what a brand should be in the sense that there is a you're a company that's run with convictions you're a company that is very um transparent in how you want to do your business but a lot of these things it feels like you're not trying to sell me a a piece of clothing from noah you're more trying to communicate a larger ideal and like it feels like for that for you guys to be successful is actually a more of a legacy than just selling an individual piece of clothing i mean that's i I would i would say that's a pretty good assessment um but i would also say to your friends at these other companies that they might not agree once they find out just how hard it is to do (laughs) we might change their minds about you know whether or not we should be the model going forward because it's incredibly difficult to try and have a you know just have a business right run a business that essentially has given itself some major guardrails in, in how it behaves mm-hmm. um, because really you, you limit your possibilities, right? I'll give you like the, the simplest example. We don't make polar fleece anything. Like we could, we would probably sell it incredibly well if we had like polar fleece products, right? Like, right. but we don't make anything because, you know, they just like, it's a polyester material and, like sheds incredibly in the wash, like zillions of microplastics every washing and this and that. So we just don't do it. Um, We almost don't use any polyester at all. Like occasionally there's some products that are blends, like a cotton nylon blend, but we tend to use them on things that you don't really wash. So you're Hmm. dealing with the kind of like microplastics issue. So like we have these massive limitations. I mean, we, we won't make disposable plastic accessories so if we make an accessory it's not like one of these really inexpensive things that you can sell thousands of because they're like five bucks um because we just think that's wasteful right it's another thing you don't really need so like you could do bic lighters all day right yeah so yeah. thousands of them <laughs> and make money on them like you'd make a good margin right but like oh absolutely but they're big lighters and they're plastic and they end up you know being thrown out and in the street and everything else so we make zippos which can last a lifetime or longer but they're more expensive so we sell a lot less of them right like all of these little choices they they mean a lot you know um yeah and it's not that we don't make anything in plastic but if we make something in plastic it's something that you use over and over and over you know, it's not just like a disposable product. It has to be something that you genuinely would use for a long time. Um, yeah. So it's, you know, it's, it's hard. It's hard doing what we do. We, and it definitely is a bigger story than just like, we want to sell you clothes for sure. Like when we yeah. started the business, it was, it, it, the idea was to build a business that could 
prove that you could be successful in business and still act responsibly. Mm. You know, and it's not an environmental conversation. Everyone thinks it's always about the environment for us. It is because that falls under the larger umbrella of trying to operate responsibly. But there are other things too, right? Like human rights issues and, you know, there's a lot of different things going on there. Um, but environment falls within that scope. So that's part yeah. of what we do. Um, and that's, I would say, the thing we have the furthest to go on, right? We have to figure that out. Um, and we're learning as we go. And we're trying to improve every year in, in, you know, how can we make products that have less of an impact? But the main, the real story when it comes to like responsible business practices for us, the real story is being honest with our consumers about things, mm-hmm. educating our consumers about things, particularly consumer behavior. That is the way to make change, in my opinion. What we buy says a lot about who we are and what we value. So if we continue to buy things at this crazy clip, right? I need this, I need that, I need this, I need that, I need this, I need that. And like, we just rifle through things, then the business environment will not change. They will keep supplying you with those things you're demanding, right? But if you change your behavior as a consumer and stop buying certain things, then the businesses will have to respond to that. Businesses will not continue to make something the public doesn't want. <laughs> True. Yeah. Right? yeah, yeah. So they just won't. It's, 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 it's death. So it's just, you know, it's science. Like they cannot continue to make a product nobody wants. So they'll change. So really, you know, in that way, that's where our strength lies more than anything. I think we, we stop demanding these things. You know, we stop buying the plastic water bottles or drink bottles or whatever. We stop buying cheaper clothing and things like that. That part is the one we get hung up on. Mm. Cheaper clothing, right? Because most people can't afford really well-made clothes in beautiful cloths, right? Or like not even beautiful cloths, just durable cloths, right? Forget about beautiful, like just like good quality, right? It's expensive. So that part is really fascinating because it's kind of like you have to reshift an entire society's idea of what success looks like and what life is supposed to be like. Because right now, everyone has been convinced through advertising and marketing and, you know, all, you know, just, just the way we've, we live that the more you have kind of the better your life is. Right. So it's not enough to just to have like the one or two really good shoes. Right. Cause maybe the ones you have aren't the latest and the greatest and you're just trying to like survive socially. Right. Like you're just trying to like fit in and, be cool and have the girls like you when you're 18. And so, and like, sometimes what you have maybe isn't enough. Right. But if the, if there's a shift in mentality and the latest and the greatest is no longer the thing that gets you um, attention or kind of satisfaction or other people respecting you, then we can change the, you know, the kind of consumer hole we've gotten ourselves into, right? So like if if the kid who has less but has better style is cooler than the kid who just shows up in the latest sneaker that's reselling for whatever, <laughs> then, you know, that kid becomes, you know, more the center of where our value structure lies and then we can move that direction, right? Yeah. And, and that's kind of where we come in because we do recognize that not everybody can afford a bunch of expensive clothes, but does it make sense to buy a whole bunch of cheap clothes that you don't right. have, to have next year? Like, you know, I know the economics of it is hard for people to understand, but like buying a lot of cheap stuff when you have the money to buy that cheap stuff over time costs you more than buying less good stuff. Yeah. Just economically, that's how it works out, right? You buy cheap stuff. It, breaks down or you throw it out or you stop wearing it or whatever. And over time you're spending more money. Right. So 
the, the problem we have is there is no option for poorer people right now in America or probably anywhere to kind of like, I, I guess what I'm trying to say it takes tremendous strength to rise above all of this. Yeah. I mean, cause tremendous that- strength you're alone, you know? And there, it's a constant battle too. Cause even I was talking with a friend of mine and I was ripping on H and M and I was like, dude, H and M is just like the whole, they're the biggest polluter in the world. They're awful. And he was like, look, it's fine. He's like, but you also have to understand that some of these brands like H and M and Gap and Old Navy, when, when like clothes for the mass became more affordable, you had an empowering of people who didn't have as much money right. and have, you know, he's like, you, you had like a democratization of, of what someone's personal image was because this person wore that gap thing. And guess what? There's tons of them available and everyone can look like that person, right. which is a couple issues. One, it's like kill your idols. But on the other hand, you also have like, okay, that's fair. That's you're right. That's a good point. And if all clothes were priced in in the way, you know, uh, and I this is a fine line for me to walk. But if all clothes w- were priced in the way that they should be, um, you know, obviously this wonderful utopian society, and then that, and you know, because then you get into bigger things like, well, if people were paid more of a fair wage, then they could buy the clothes that you know actually cost the right money. <laughs> the system as it currently exists will not allow responsible com- responsible companies to succeed at a mass level, right? says there's simply not enough people who can afford to pay for the products that are produced in a more responsible way because they're expensive. So it's a smaller audience, right? Like there's a bunch of, there's a few reasons for that. One is economic inequality, right? Poor people can't afford to buy better quality things. So the demand for less expensive products goes up. Cost of living, which is what you're addressing, right? continues to go up, but the pay doesn't match the cost of living, right? So people are being paid less in a society that costs more to live in, right? So like, you just don't have, it it doesn't add up, right? The consumer can't activate their power to demand better products to make change because they can't afford to. Right. Right. So, and then on the other side, you have the manufacturers, right? They have to respond to higher demand for cheaper goods and in other cases are simply looking to increase their own profits. So some can't change and some don't want to change, right? Um, the result of this is manufacturers either seeking cheaper labor and ways to cut costs, which results in even more poverty and rule breaking such as dodging safe human rights and environmental practices, right? So it's the system that we're in. It's the bigger system that, you know, we I can sit here and be like, yeah, you should just buy better stuff. No big deal. And it's like, yeah. Tell that to somebody who's just struggling to pay their rent and put food on the table. You know, like I recognize that that is not a real option for everybody. What I'm trying to get to is a place where we have more of a wave of people who understand how this works and we slowly start to change our behavior as consumers to make it change, to make it better. Right. Like, and it has to happen at multiple levels. There's consumer behavior, there's, you know, legislation that needs to happen. I mean, yeah, this country is absurd to me that we, you know, there's people sitting there being like, Oh, you can't help people. They got to put on their boots and get it done. And like, it's like, it's so ridiculous that there's people who still talk that way when like the system is clearly rigged. It's clearly unfair and uneven. I mean, it's bonkers to me. So, yeah. Yeah. But as it relates to just clothing, you know, people have, in order for this to start to change, either the system has to provide people with better options or we have to change our view, you know, like how we gain our self-esteem, right? Because a lot of people tie their self-esteem to what they own, to what they wear, to what they drive, to where they live and all these things. So we would Mm. have to change that completely. Like, like, and that's really, that's a lot to ask of like a 16 year old kid or a 13 year old kid or a 24 year old kid. Hey man, like, Everybody's doing this. And if you show up wearing this or driving this, everyone's going to think you're the greatest. Don't do that. Right? Like that's what we're asking. And that's really hard to do. So, you know, as it relates to Noah specifically, you know, we recognize that that is a, puts a massive limitation on the business and you accept that. 
you say that that's that's not our, our role is not to be the biggest our role is to kind of like provide a space for people who want to change um and want to be a part of the change to to buy clothing and be a part of something right and we could have come in and made only really 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 expensive stuff and some of it is you know um i would argue not as expensive as it would be if another brand was doing it but yeah but expensive no doubt um but but we recognize that and this was another kind of industry uh norm we challenged that you could be multi price point at the same time right most brands they exist they're high they're middle they're low i mean they even talk about it that way right like yeah. we're a middle tier brand and we're you know like and we challenged that we said well you know we got beanies for 32 bucks you know t-shirts are 48 they're not the cheapest t-shirts in the world but they're pretty average at this point um and then we have 1500 cashmere shirts you know all in the same space and and that was really important as well because why why should you have to buy like call it like a spin-off brand or a sub-brand or whatever to access something you know why does it have to be well here's the brand and then oh we have this other thing and it's called something else and oh and then we have this other thing and it's called something else because then you're not really getting the thing the thing you're not getting the actual thing right you're not a part of the actual thing you're part of something else well that's why at least to me i think like you know, and hopefully this doesn't offend you. Like, I think Noah is a movement more than a clothing brand. <laughs> you know, when you, when you look at everything that you guys are communicating, um, it's never so much like even on your site, all your marketing, all your messaging, you as a person, um, you, like there's never anything that's like buy this to feel better. It's it's a message, but you also sell clothes. <laughs> I mean. I would, you know, <laughs> you might be giving it a little more credit than it deserves, but I mean, I would love for that to be the case. I mean, because the fact is, and this gets into a, a, another area of conversation when you talk about authenticity. Mm -hmm. um, I've always been someone who thought you shouldn't really mess with stuff if it's not really a part of your, like, you know, like if I was going to all of a sudden do like, I don't know, like a collection inspired by like rowing, right. Without a partnership. Right. I would have to go learn to row. <laughs> like, like I, I would have to be a part of that culture and community in a real way. Right. Like, right. Um, to feel really good about it, you know, or at least, you know, another approach we take is if there's someone in the organization who's genuinely connected to something, you know, that becomes a, a part of the bigger story because the brand isn't singular. It's not me. It's not myself and Estelle. It's, it's the people that come into the community and what they bring as well. So we've been lucky because we have a lot of really fascinating and interesting people working in the company who, who bring a lot to the table, you know? Um, but that, that the idea of activity, you know, things that people are passionate about. I'm talking about the movement comment now. Yeah. When yeah. people are passionate about something, that's when it becomes real. That's when the brand is real and not like a created lifestyle, right? Like that's when you haven't sat down with agencies and this and that and like cultivated and curated this idea of who you are. It's like, no, we do and touch the things we do and touch, right? Like we skate, we surf, we run, we've got bird watchers on the staff. We've got, you know, people <laughs> who care about the environment on the staff. We've got, you know, everyone loves music. So like everything we do is really real. And I've often said that activity, you know, brands that are based in activity, they're more authentic than brands that are based in some other weird idea, right? Like fashion brands, right? Right. Because people are passionate about their activities. It doesn't matter if it's skateboarding, surfing, running, fishing, tennis. It does not matter. That's your, like, you're into it. Like, that's really who you are. Like, I play tennis. I love tennis. Great. Tennis brands have a much more lo loyal audience than any other brand, right? Because, or, or fishing brands or skateboard brands, because people love what they do. So 
we recognized that early on and, and, you know, not as a, as a marketing trick, but just like, how do we communicate to people that what's important to us is the things you do and the things you're interested in. And that gives rise to your style. It's not the other way around. Just like shopping isn't a thing. Like, it, I mean, I guess it can be, but it's pretty scary if that's like your hobby, right? If that's your passion, <laughs> right? Like, and shopping doesn't necessarily lead to good style. Shopping leads to maybe being in fashion. They're very different things, right? Like being fashionable is just having the latest thing that everybody agrees is cool. And usually they agree it's cool because they paid celebrities a zillion dollars to wear it, either in the streets or in an ad or whatever. So then you're influenced by them. You're not coming to that conclusion on your own, right? So yeah. we kind of like built that into the business. We're like, we're just going to do the things we do and, you know, make sure activity is part of the conversation, you know, the things we're really interested in doing. Because um, that's where style comes from. Like real style, not fashion. It comes from like if you're, you know, if you're a skateboard kid, you're influenced by all of the things that come with skateboarding. And with skateboarding, it's a mixed bag. It's all over. It's like really diverse, right? It's fascinating, not just stylistically, but musically and the personalities and, you know, like the fact that it's not like one race. And, you know, it's like you're just getting this like great kind of like mix up and you take from it what you want, but you're going to be, you're going to, you can kind of see skateboarders, you know, like, like, oh, that's your culture, you know, and it is a real culture. Same with like, I talk about hip hop early on when there wasn't a massive industry building clothing for like the hip hop community. It wasn't like right. targeting, right? It was more like it was invented out of thin air. It was like, I'm a B-boy. I rap. My friend's a writer. My other friend's a dancer. You know, like this is what we do. And like, this is how we dress. But in the early days, the dress style was just an amalgamation of things, right? It was like pulling things. It was like, regular sportswear from like Adidas and Puma and Fila and, and, and those brands mixed with like, you know, a sheepskin or, you know, of, of, you know, fur trimmed, like hooded bomber. Like these were all things that were taken from other places, you know, lumberjack shirts, you know, BVDs, like, you know, they all came from other areas and then were like appropriated and reinvented. And, and that just shows real creativity, right? That just shows a community that really is independent and has real creativity. And it wasn't until many years later that people recognized like, oh, we can like target this audience and build brands for them, right? And then it became this really kind of like, I would argue generic look. Right. You know what I mean? Like it, it, it became really like singular, you know? Because like, in the early days, you know, like the late seventies and the early eighties, when I was a kid, everyone didn't look exactly the same. There was a lot of things like, you know, creased leaves and fat laces and stuff like that. But there was within that, there was a lot of nuance, you know what I mean? Some of it was based on what you can afford. You know what I mean? Like, um, you know, some people, if, if you were like a break dancer, like you went a little more the sportswear way. You know what I mean? And like, yeah, yeah. maybe if you were just somebody who like really appreciated everything that was going on, but you didn't participate in the same way, you weren't like a writer or you weren't, you know, a break dancer or, you know, a rapper or whatever it was, or DJ, like you might've just had like a fresh style, right? And like, maybe you had more money. So like you had some of the more elevated pieces, you know, like, like for me, like a sheepskin, that was like the top tier. I, yeah. I mean, that was right. Like if you get yeah. a sheepskin, then like, you were, you know, you were really flexing, you know, cause we were all kids, right? Like talking about like 12 years old, you know, 11 years old, 13 years old, like this, you're young. Um, so yeah, it's pretty, it's pretty interesting how th those two communities for me, skateboarding and hip hop, I think contributed the most to like, at least creative thinking about clothing and, you know, and I think, it has to do with the personalities of the people, at least in the early days, connected to them. They were just more independent. Yeah, and and punk too. I mean, you know, I, my friends and I always make a joke that like anyone that was into punk eventually like 
became like a clothing designer or a creative director. I mean, it's just, it just happened. You know, I mean, Aaron Levine and I text about this stuff all the time right. <laughs> to where it's just like punk rock dudes, you know, Brian from Wooden Sleepers, you know, guys that used to be in bands, they're all into clothes. And, you know, I mean, Jeremy Dean, uh, right. you know, I mean, th- it's, that's, you know, and I don't know if it's like an anti-establishment. I don't know, you know, what it is, but there is this, and maybe it's kind of like what you're saying, because I don't think all of those folks have the same background or, you know, they had a love of music, but everything was kind of an amalgamation outside of that. Well, I think, you know, I think a lot of it is time and place, right? So mm. where are you from and when are you from there, right? So I was from the suburbs of New York where starting in the seventies, maybe around six or eight, definitely by 10, I was already on my way to being not the typical teenager. Right. So my interest in music very young was not normal. I think I might've been six or eight when I started listening to like real deal grown up music. Like, you know, who, who introduced you to it? So I don't know if anyone introduced me to it. My father wasn't really around. Um, I think some of his records got maybe left behind. I honestly don't remember how it happened, but like I was listening. So I can, I can vividly remember listening. And this is not music that people will really think is very interesting today necessarily. But for a six-year-old to be listening to this stuff at that time, it was kind of like, like I was listening to Jim Croce and Kansas. Hell yeah. And, and Kansas. Um, you know, I remember listening with my cousins to um, Toys in the Attic by Aerosmith, you know, really young. I think I might have been eight when I was listening to the White Album by the Beatles. Um, so like, and I don't know how that happened. I honestly don't know how that happened. Like it just, maybe it was just trying to connect you know, to my father who wasn't there and there's his music. I don't really know exactly how it happened. Right. You no. Know, um, some of my cousins were older. I mean, they're not even my real cousins. We called them my cousins cause we lived with them for a little while. Cause my, anyway, it was a whole divorce sure. thing and we were living with other people and some of them were older and I think it was their music too. So that's what introduced me to that. And then, you know, at that age, Oh, even queen. I remember I was listening to queen really young, um, which was, pretty much the popular music at the time, but it was, it was rock and roll, you know? So for a six and eight year old to be listening to, I was a little bit off, but, and then that interest in music expanded. And I think I just had an interest in music generally, where I think at the time, most people felt they had to choose. Mm. It was like, you know, by the time you're 12 or 13, you know, your older brother is going to dictate to you, you know, what you're listening to. So, oh yeah, you know who else? One of my oldest friends, the guy whose wife just texted me about his 50th, Garrett Fig, he had an older brother and an older sister, and they were a fair amount older than him. Okay. So I would go to his house all the time. I'd say this is third grade, fourth grade. His brother had Ramon's records. He had... Genesis records, and that might have been his sister's records. I'm not even sure whose were whose, but we would listen to these records. Um, the police. Um, so we were getting this musical education um very early on and not really fully understanding it, just letting allow it, letting it to like wash over us. You know what I mean? Um, oh, that is that's awesome. I mean, it's music and scent are the are the two strongest like memory triggers. Yeah. Like there's if you yeah, like if I hear Stuart Copeland just beating the shit out of some drums on a police album or whatever, that reminds me of like, you know, North County and then my cousin's house and then this and then the way the food smelled there and their house and w- the color of the walls. Like only music is able to do that sort of thing for people. I mean, that's why there's also like music therapy, right? I mean, but it's, but that really hits. Uh, I mean, yeah. if, I, if I track it all, which I don't think I've ever really done. So it started there. And then if you fast forward a couple of years, I'm a little bit older. Now I have an older brother as well. He was, he and his friends who really, you know, I had already been skateboarding from like 1976. 
but they were obviously influencing me tremendously because they were older than me, right? right? They were listening to like in excess, right? This is or this is like like this is probably like eighty one, eighty two, like when the next. This is all like just absolute banger albums, right. by the way. <laughs> but, but this is like when in excess first came to the American market. Like they were early on it, right? And so I was hearing that, loved it. Um, but I talked about time and place earlier, and I say that because if you're a suburban kid in New York, you know where you're interested in music and things related to music or things that share culture with music. So if you're like into skateboarding, you're going to hear certain things, you know, I had so much exposure in such a crammed window of time. You're talking about like from the seventies music, which evolved into like, you had punk, post-punk new wave, like doom, doom, doom. Right. All of that I was being exposed to. And then simultaneously I had cousins from upstate New York and Newburgh who were exposing me to hip hop as it was happening. Like, like it, it wasn't discovered later. They were coming to visit in the summer or I was going to visit them. And I was hearing hip hop as it was being released. Mm. Like I was super young. I didn't really make much of it, but then that really got me interested in like hip hop and like B-boy culture and that kind of stuff. And, and it was all happening at the same time. Then you get into like teenage years there's a radio station that was on the ground called WLIR, which was the premier alternative music station in the country. Like K-Rock gets a lot of credit, but most people don't know WLIR because it went out of business years ago. So it's just been forgotten about. But it was absolutely the premier alternative station in the country when nobody would play that music. They broke every artist from the UK no doubt about it. I mean, YouTube gives them credit for breaking them. Like it's, you know, oh, wow. Yeah. If you go on, you know, like satellite radio now, like first wave, Larry, the duck was a WLAR DJ. Like all these DJs that are on, on like all over, like um, satellite radio, a lot of them, Malibu Sioux, like they were all WLAR DJs. They were kids. They were like in their twenties. Um, and I was exposed to that station as were a lot of Long Islanders. You'll find that if you look at people in their like forties and fifties and sixties from Long Island, a lot of them are like new wave fans because of this station. You couldn't even get it in the city. The bandwidth wasn't or whatever you call it. wasn't strong enough to get it in the city. Like, so we had this like crazy education from this radio station. And if you were someone who didn't fit in, if you felt like you weren't, you know, you weren't a football player and all that kind of typical stuff from the eighties, this kind of was your place. So as a kid who was into skating and surfing and and different things, that music really appealed to me. I mean, I remember the first time I heard Smiths, I just could not believe there was someone out there who felt the same way as me and put it into song (laughs) in such a way, you know, or the cure or, you know, I mean, it just was like, and I really got pulled into that world in, in a major way where, you know, and, and not to say it was even like the music is deserving of the attention, right? Like Sinead O'Connor is an incredible artist, right? Imagine a 15-year-old kid in, you know, a high school where, that Boomer Esiason went to because he went to, like, imagine the culture there, right, in the 80s. Like football and baseball were king. And here I come. 15 years old. And I think Sinead O'Connor is like the most beautiful woman I've ever seen. Right. Like that's not normal. <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> like that's definitely not normal, you know? So um, I, I say that to explain like time and place. I was in New York and not so much just the city, but like I was exposed to so many different things in such a brief window of time. I'd say all the way up to the late eighties, very early nineties when kind of like rave stuff even came over to America from England we were really interested in, in that music. We were already listening to, you know, there was like kind of like electronic, like ministry kind of like evolved into like oh, yeah. industrial, big, right? And like yeah. bands like Meat Beat Manifesto. So like, and and we were also had this history with, with dance through hip hop. So, you know, dancing wasn't a problem for me and some of my friends. Like we knew how to dance. We were really about it. So, you know, from hip hop house music into kind of even like rave stuff. Some of the rave stuff that wasn't like hardcore stuff. 
mm. had, had a lot of soul to it and had a lot of kind of like house influence. Um, so I'd say from like 75 all the way to like 1992, it was just another new musical thing after another. Yeah. And if you loved music, it was just so rich. There was so much newness. And like each one of these things had its own culture you could kind of like explore, right? Like going to shows yeah. was one thing, right? But then going to Nell's, you know, for hip hop and, you know, R&B or whatever you want to call it is a whole other thing. And then going to a 50 person party in a recording studio is some whole other thing. Um, culturally, you get all this really interesting stuff happening. The thing they share is a love of music, right? All the people there have a love of the music. And, and I think I've always appreciated that. And, and there's a movie that came out recently called Shoplifters of the World. Mm. It's, it's, it's not the greatest movie, but it's also not the worst movie. It's, okay. it's about the day the Smiths broke up. Uh-huh. And it's just these friends in Denver, Colorado who are Smiths fans who don't necessarily fit in right with the rest of society. Oh, and it's a day in the life of these friends. And then this other guy who works in a record store who goes to the radio station and takes the overnight metal DJ hostage and forces him to play airheads. (laughs) I said airheads. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, it's kind of like that, right? It's like, yeah, takes the DJ hostage and forces him to play the Smiths. And of course, by the end of the night, they realize how much they have in common, right? Like, and how much the music even has in common. And for whatever it's worth, the movie's worth watching just for that. Oh, damn. Okay. Like, it's, I, I'm still trying to get my wife to watch it, to get her to, like, get some context on, like, where I came from and how I ended up the way I am. Um, but I would, I would recommend it, especially if you're a Smiths fan, because it's like, 20 Smith songs in it, you know, it's hard to stay immersed in emerging culture as you get older. Right. It's just yeah. like life takes over. And I, I, I often wish young people would kind of like know that sooner, like acknowledge mm. that reality. So they kind of like one really cherish the time they have when things are happening, you know, when you can just, Get in your skateboard, go out, be out all day. You don't know where you're going to end up. You don't know what you're doing. No responsibility. Loads of people. Like really appreciate that and enjoy it. But also I think have a little respect for older people who maintain an ability to kind of be open-minded to new things. Because I think that, I don't think people realize just how hard that is to do when you get older. Just how hard it is to kind of like stay or even want to stay connected to new ideas and new things. It's incredibly difficult. Like no one around you is doing it or trying to do it. You've got family, you've got kids, you've got responsibilities, you've got all of these things. So like you don't even have the time. So you have to make time. Right. Right. You really genuinely, if I want to know what's going on in music, I've got to make time for that. Yeah. It doesn't occur naturally for me anymore. And it, and it won't for anyone who, you know, like, these kids today are 22 and 23. They're going to be in the same boat as me eventually, you know? So like the sooner they recognize that that's a reality almost for, almost for everybody, um, kind of the better off they'll be because they can prepare for it and they can like build infrastructure in their life for it. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think that's actually some of the stuff you do really well with a lot of the collaborations that Noah does into which, you know, like you guys did a collaboration with The Cure, you did a thing with New Order, um, you have this upcoming thing with with Tom Wesselman or the, the estate of Wesselman. Like, how do some of those things fall on your plate? Or is it you being like, I love The Cure, let's find a way to do something with The Cure? I mean, the music ones are usually, they usually just come directly from my heart. <laughs> right. It's like, like <laughs> most of the time, um, that's how they come about. I'm trying to think if there's been any recommendations from other people that i mean everyone in the company appreciates the things we do already um, right. so like people can throw out all these ideas and they'll eventually happen you know what i mean so like um but the music stuff a lot of it comes from me um 
the brand stuff, you know, it could come from anywhere, but like, it's always stuff that we're interested in. It's always stuff that we're generally interested in. Music specifically, that is more for me trying to make sure that we don't lose the thread of connection from where we are musically today going like, so people have a new history, right? Like there's a lot of things that are happening today in music that wouldn't have happened without all these other people, right? All, all of these other bands that came before them. And I think the musicians understand that. I think that the bands, right. They, they grew up listening to bands. They've been influenced by them, but I don't know if the public necessarily understands that. So we try to kind of position these things as kind of educational tools. Like you should really know about this. Um, and by the way, the stuff looks great too. You know what I mean? <laughs> like, and, and that's a big deal because, you know, going back to Supreme with the music collaborations we would do there, like obviously the graphic element is massively important. Right. So if you have an incredible band and they have no graphic history of any kind, it makes it a lot harder to do, right? If you really want to do it, it's, it's, it becomes pretty difficult. But if their graphic history is really rich, you know, um, then it becomes that much easier, you know? Like think about like a, like Black Sabbath and, you know, things like that. There's really cool stuff there to kind of like dig into. Um, and in some cases, it's, it's recognizing that some bands, for whatever reason in their history, didn't necessarily tap even their great graphic history in a way that they could have. Mm. So you kind of come in with a design sensibility of like, oh, you have all these great graphics from your singles that nobody ever saw. Let's put one over here. Or like, you know, let's screen grab video shots if we're legally allowed to, you know, and put that on a t-shirt. So there's, it's just a different idea, right? Cause the bands, some of them never really thought about their products. You know, they just, it just wasn't what they did, right? Somebody else did it for them and just yeah. turned up. Um, so it gives us an opportunity to kind of like reimagine some of what they could have done, um, which is super fun for us. Um, what about like the artist dates, like with, so the, the with art stuff, or So the art stuff, you know, full disclosure, right? Like art for me personally, I used to think I, I, I didn't know anything about art and I didn't care about art. That's how I used to think. Like I was like, it, it, I didn't have time for it. I didn't have money for it. Um, I thought there was a lot of kind of like, I, don't know, I thought it was kind of like out of my my zone, you know what I mean? Um, but since starting the company, since starting Noah, I've, I've kind of shifted my perception a little bit where like I, I do have a real interest. What I don't have an interest in is a lot of the stuff that comes with it. Right, yeah. Right? And I realized when I was younger, I was avoiding that. I was avoiding the kind of like social construct. I was avoiding the kind of like, all the stuff that came with being interested in art, like the conversations you had to have, the places you had to go, maybe people you interacted with. That stuff didn't interest me at all. But artists and art, I discovered more recently in later life, I'm terribly interested in that because it's it's people expressing themselves and it's um, it's really independent thinkers in a lot of situations, right? People trying to do their own thing, actively trying to do their own thing. Right. Like a great artist might be influenced by other great artists, but has no interest in copying them. Right. And like, so it's kind of a new beginning for me to be quite honest over the last several years, like what interests me. And when something really genuinely hits me, it makes sense to potentially talk about that in the same way we talk about the music stuff. So that's where that stuff is coming from now. It's kind of, it's kind of new and fresh and, in a way, very exciting for me because I don't have an art history. I never cared. I never really, like I was surrounded by it. Like I couldn't walk 10 feet without being hit in the face with like, Hey, you coming to the show or like, Hey, have you met this artist? Or like, you know, it was always there. It was ever present around me, but I never really engaged. I just kind of kept my distance. It always felt like I wasn't sophisticated enough for it or something. So I just kind of was like, I'll stay away from that. But now I just feel like, I guess when you get older, you just don't care anymore about that stuff. It's like, well, I like what I like. Yeah. And if I find it interesting, we're going to talk about it. Um, and Wesselman falls into that category where, you know, looking at the work, I, you know, I could tell you a, a little bit about Wesselman as an artist, because once I saw it, I started exploring the history, but I'm not like an authority of any kind. I just really loved it. And I did get even, 
more engaged when I discovered that, you know, Wesselman, Wesselman came to his style or styles through rejection of his influences, um, mm. which I, I, I love that. Like that's kind of how new things happen. Right. Um, so yeah, I've, I've discovered, and you know, it's, it, you know, to people who care about art, I'm like nothing, right. I'm like silly, but like, I did discover there's things I like and I started, you know, really thinking about what, what we could do with it or what it means to me or should other people, you know, like, and I'm not a sophisticated art person, right? Like what I like usually just tends to look good. <laughs> like, yeah, same. <laughs> visually it's interesting. Like I'm not, yeah. I, I, I do lack sophistication in that way. I'm just like, well, if it looks good, I like it. I mean, I like David Hockney. You know, I mean, how it's like the easiest thing in the world to like, you know what I mean? <laughs> like I'm, I'm, I'm not out here trying to kind of like, talk to people about my sophisticated knowledge of art in any way, shape or form. However, I think Wesselman is incredible. I, I love the work that he did. I love the approach he took. Um, there's a lot there that I'm, I'm really interested in. So it seemed like a really good fit for us. Um, I think it was probably recommended even from one of, it might've been one of the team that first kind of like talked to me about it. You know what I mean? Oh, that's awesome. Like, yeah, I don't, I, I, I'm not even sure that one came from me. It could have, honestly, like I forget what happens sometimes. It could have been me seeing something like, you know, like having an interest, we should do this, but it could have just as easily come from Amir or Corey or one of the guys that I work with. Um, I mean, that says a lot about how you run your business, just as an aside, the fact that, you know, at, not everything that is outputted by you all comes from you individually, I think is huge in terms of team empowerment. And Yeah, it definitely does. And I mean, you know, everyone brings stuff to the table for sure, which, you know, is I think what gives us kind of like a, a rich kind of culture and presentation as a business. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I, I just don't remember how the Westman thing came to be, but, but I'm, I'm really happy about this idea that art is finding a place in my life, you know, and, and I, I'm really happy about the idea that, I didn't feel forced into it to be interesting or cool. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like, yeah. I, I, I feel really, cause it, cause now it feels really honest and genuine for me. Like the things I like, I like, and you know, it took me a long time to get here. Um, and it had nothing to do with social status or of any kind. It just kind of like slowly evolved. And, and now I feel confident. Just like, yeah, I like that. And if you don't, yeah. if you don't like it and you think I'm a dork for liking it, oh, that's fine. You know, like, so it's, it's a great time for me to really explore these things, you know, um, Estelle, you know, my wife, she, I'd say she has a much bigger interest or, or has had a much bigger interest in art over the years. Um, that might have something to do with how I'm getting here and evolving as well. Um, because she's, she's really interested and she has friends, you know, who are artists and in the art world and, you know, so that probably plays a role, you know, um, and how I'm in the direction I'm going with my relationship to art. Yeah. I'm trying to challenge myself to buy one piece of art from like an artist that I like a year now. Like I'll be honest. I like some artists that like that make art that I will, you know, I mean, making a living as a podcaster, I'll never be able to afford, but like, Someone like Jeff McFetridge, whom like I've had on the pod, super nice guy. He sells his studies. You can, you know, email him. And there is the way, you know, in terms of his art as a whole, it's extremely affordable. Right. And I was like, okay. I was like, it's going to hurt a bit, but I really love this. I also want to patronize, you know, the, the artists that I like. Right. I mean, it's, it's weird. Someone told me about like there's a website that basically is like an art market similar to you know, everything else that's, you know, different galleries and different dealers. And I guess it just surged in COVID because people were like, well, I'm going to redo my house and buy a bunch of art. But it's like, you can get, you know, there's a, there's another woman named uh, Clara Chabrian who, or maybe I mispronounced her first name, but like, she's a Spanish artist and you can get her studies and things for really inexpensive. And it's beautiful. Right. You know? And so I'm like, okay, like I want to at least put myself in the habit, not that like I'm going to become some like snobby art collector, you know, but just like to 
to try to have more of a direct relationship with the things that I really love. Right. I mean, it's, you know, it's really interesting. I mean, Estelle puts a lot of art in the stores. Yeah. I was going to say, you guys do a good job with that. Yeah. I mean, and it's, you know, oftentimes it's friends and people we know, you know, um, so that also has kind of exposed me, you know, like Curtis Kulig is a, a really good friend of ours. And you know, yeah, that's amazing. You know, he's like right up the stairs from our store as well. You know, he's like, <laughs> Our store is like a living room for him. He's like family, you know? Um, and yeah, she, so she's been bringing a lot of art to the stores, which is really cool, you know, like, um, and it's educational for me as well, you know, because I, I also have to like it. Right. Like, yeah, I don't think she would necessarily just go off on some tangent and do some stuff I really don't like, you know, but one of the more interesting things I, I learned in this process of, of working with artists or not working with them, but like sometimes the estates and so on and so forth, like is I have, I have a friend from high school. I hadn't seen in a very long time and we weren't like super close. He was like really good friends with like this kid who I hired at the shop. And okay. so they were like the gen, like, you know, a grade or two below me. They were like the, the up and coming kids who were into skateboarding. So they, they were like the outcasts in their little community. So obviously I love them. And, um, you know, I knew him then, hadn't seen him for a million years. And somehow, I can't remember how we reconnected, but like he became a still life painter. And I think that's what it's called. But like, you know, old school, like yeah, really super old school. Like, and we did some stuff with him. We did a t-shirt and we, you know, he lent us a beautiful painting for the store and and in the process, you can you can find the thing we did with him because we have a video with him talking about it. And I was fascinated because he will only paint in natural light, which means he has limited time in the day to paint. He has to have certain skylights in certain places and stuff to get the right light and all this kind of stuff. And it's an incredibly slow process. And I guess nobody cares about it anymore. So like the thing in art that takes out arguably the most skill to do is the least respect. Cause like the, like what he paints looks like photographs in some, I mean, it's just phenomenal. Yeah. Um, and he has to do it with very strict um, kind of like guidelines and how he does it to be considered a master at what he does or whatever. Right. Um, and I find that fascinating because I, I think that stuff's incredible. I love that stuff. I think it's absolutely stunning and beautiful. And, it's interesting that like it doesn't carry a lot of financial value in the art marketplace. It's people just decided that's not cool. And he explained it to me. I think it was a rejection. I think with like pop art in America and, and that kind of thing, it was a rejection. I think this is how he explained it. It was a rejection of European old European history, right? There's this modernist idea of like, that's the old way. You know, and I and that that made sense to me. I was like, oh yeah, so if everyone's been painting this way for hundreds of years, and you're an artist and you want to do something different, obviously you don't do that anymore, right? You're gonna right. go to like, this painting like a canvas blue and be like, that's it, you know, done. Like, so it, it does make sense, but but then at the same time, it bothers me that our society is so reactionary to things that like they don't create space for all of the components, right? It's like if you think about the 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 early nineties when everyone decided in skateboarding, like you couldn't have a skateboard wider than like seven and a half inches. And we had <laughs> this and that you couldn't even buy a big board for a long time. I got ridiculed. Cause I had like an over eight inch, you know, Bob Burnquist, whatever. Right. <laughs> you couldn't buy bigger wheels. You could, you know, 60 mil, forget it. Like you, you know, like it wasn't even available in the market. People stopped making it completely. And that, drove me nuts and like it's really nice to see now that like in the skateboard world it's really diverse right like you can get shapes you can get popsicles you can get you know wider trucks bigger trucks smaller wheels bigger, like and i feel like i guess i'd like to see some of that in the art world where like this space that existed for so long and takes so much time to master would get a little more respect um mm. his name is dale zinkowski and he's amazing he's just like the coolest kid. He's not a kid anymore, but um, yeah. So that that was a, an interesting part of my art history discovery. That's cool. The, the 
best thing like in a you know a other friend of mine who is an artist is like just you know liking art is just having an opinion right you, you don't have to you don't have to look at a vermeer and be like oh you know it was so amazing because uh you know he was so poor and he spent all his money on that blue and but like it doesn't matter like if you like it and it moves you that's it that's that's all you need and i think that's that's probably some of the best stuff about art because a lot of stuff clothes music sometimes if someone says they like it they're going to get like quizzed on it versus like no i don't i don't need to just because i didn't understand the politics of the smiths at the time right. and i like this song that's it that that's enough right you know yeah i mean so, so i mean the wesselman stuff for me was it's, it's color it's theme it's you know very colorful yeah, yeah. like and, and that's it's you know, the women, like the way he painted women is really cool. You know what I mean? Like the use of space and non-space is really interesting to me and, and just looks really good, you know? Yeah. Um, so I'm, I'm super excited about that collaboration, actually. <laughs> like it's... um. Well, it's good that you're doing that too, because I feel like you have a lot of people who are very loyal and, a, and huge fans of Noah and whatever you put out they're going to try to understand more. I mean, Supreme was like that too. I mean, the amount of people that got into Miles Davis from a Supreme collab is, I think is great actually, you know? I mean, look, with James, it's a whole other level. James loves art and loves artists and always has. And, you know, he was, we were all getting an education from James in that space. You know what I mean? And recognizing that some of the art could reach regular people through apparel this is a really insightful thing. You know what I mean? Really smart and, um, and just cool as well. Right. Cause like yeah. if you have, you know, Damien Hurst t-shirt or whatever, or like, you know, any of the artists, right. Like, like wool or any, you know, Marilyn Minter go down the list of projects from over the years. I mean, visually they're all great. They all just look great. They're just incredible. You know what I mean? And like, if, if, if that's your access point, um, because, most of us can't afford the actual art. I, th- I think that's okay. I mean, I think there's limitations. I think, you know, I think intention really matters, right? Like what you intend to do with things should play a big role in how art and artists work is used when it comes to anything outside of the actual work. Mm-hmm. I think you really, you know, the estates, some of them care, some of them don't. You know, yeah, I was going to say the Rothko estate is is somewhat notorious, you know, so, yeah. Like some of them are like, no way, or like, yes, but only if, and others are just like, whatever, you know, like, <laughs> no, like, you know, and, and, and that's interesting, you know, you, you wonder what would have happened in some of these cases if the artists were still around, you know, would they have embraced this, you know, because the new ones do, right? The newer artists all embrace this as just part of, the new way that culture works, mm-hmm. right? Some of them came up the same way we did. So they're kind of okay with products and things, right? Cause it's like always been a part of their life. So I wonder if some of the older artists would have had that same openness to it or not. And I wouldn't judge it either way, right? Like it's their choice. Everyone has their own idea about what their work is and how it should exist. Right. So there'd never be a judgment, but I would be interested to see, who would line up with the current state of things and who wouldn't, you know, if they were around, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I agree. Especially when, you know, you have some folks that unfortunately, you know, left us right as, you know, the, the mediums of what their art could be was, was getting radically expanded. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. Yeah. So, you know, this is a a new journey for me. I I hope it continues and I hope I don't get pulled in the wrong direction with it. And I just stay focused on what I like and not all the external stuff, you know? I I mean, that's, that's it right there. It's just like liking what you like. I don't, anything else. I mean, fuck them. Honestly, it just doesn't. um, Yeah. I mean, at my age, I don't, you know, that is kind of my approach to almost everything. Um, You know, but, but, you know, it's hard. It's not, it's not easy. You know, we are like, everyone thinks you grow up and like, you kind of like leave the teenager behind and, you know, your insecurities and all this, but you kind of don't, you know what I mean? Like, you're still kind of like, you know, you you still have feelings, right? You're not, you're not both. That, 
that's been the hardest, hardest thing I've dealt with maybe in the past like two years is this level of adulthood into which I have <laughs> friends that friends that are way, you know, I'm not complaining, but friends that are like way wealthier than me, have zero responsibilities, are dicking around in New York, getting 10,000 iced coffees a day and like <laughs> doing whatever it is that they're doing. Right. And, and like they don't understand where it's like, no, I have... You know, I have a dad who's sick. I have a, a three-year-old. I have like these responsibilities and I can't, I can't live that life that you're living anymore. Right, right. And like mentally, I've been like, oh my God, like if I can't, if I'm not in New York right now, if I'm not at that stupid fucking restaurant, like am, am I, is my worth gone? Like it's, there's been like crazy stuff that's happened that maybe only somewhat recently in terms of like this like level I don't know, mid-level adulthood or, or whatever that means when you're seeing all the friends that at one point we were all on the same level. And now I have some that are way lower, right. way higher, all, all over the place. It's it's weird. Well, I mean, that goes back to what we were talking about earlier with kind of like, where do you get your value from, right? Like mm-hmm. I somehow at a very young age, I remember this too, acknowledged that the general idea of what's good or cool or interesting is only one way. And you can, and like, there's a whole, there's like a million other ways that things can be interesting or cool. Or, you know what I mean? Like, like, so yeah. if you're cool in New York, right. And, you know, cause you got the right clothes and you eat the right places, your girlfriend or wife or boyfriend or whatever is beautiful. And you have all the things that tick all the boxes of like what it takes to be like, Man, that, that person's awesome. Like, yeah. That's incredible, right? You take that same person, but all they know is that stuff, right? Like they know where to eat, they're cultured. Maybe they go to the ballet and galleries and this and that. And that's the thing, right? And you take that same person and you drop them in Alaska and like they can't chop wood or do anything. They're kind of like, you know, or they, they're not, they're not like a, a prize catch there, right? Like, yeah, if, good point. If, if you can't fend off a bear and protect your wife and kids, you know, you might be pretty useless in Alaska. <laughs> so like, it, it, it's fascinating to me that like, it, it just depends on where you are, right? It's a matter of perspective. Um, and if you can reshape your perspective and be like, yeah, I, I see all that over there right next to me is all very cool and interesting, but like, I live here. There's going to be a whole other group of people who are interested in what you're interested in and think you're an interesting person because of it. You know? Yeah. Um, and I think, to be fair to New York, I think New York allows for that. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I think New yes. York really allows for like, you can still be an active person or you can be a literary person or, you know, like you can be like, you know, a yuppie. You can be like, all of these things like can exist together in New York and um, it, it allows those things to kind of like have their own spaces. You know what I mean? Yeah, I agree. I agree. First off, thank you. Thank you so much. For yeah, this was fun. This is your fun. candor, your generosity. And I'm glad this worked out. Like you were, you were someone, you were kind of like my white whale. Oh, it's really? like, man. Well, yeah. I mean, because for me, I mean, you're whether indirectly, indirectly, I mean, you've been a huge influence on my life and, and my love of the industry and what, what you've built, what the fact that you've been able to, to be who you are and, make Noah and make it and also like it feels like uh, optically you haven't had to compromise on too much and it's only made you more successful I mean you know I don't I mean like we don't compromise that much but that's part of the problem right like that well, <laughs> that's what makes it so hard to do sure <laughs> you know like I I I often wish we could compromise a little more and, and make it a little bit easier on ourselves um, but that's flattering thank you for saying that that's really nice yeah yeah, of course. I mean, and you have a, a lot of our listeners are massive Noah fans. Oh, that's cool. Um, yeah, like when the barber thing dropped and all that. I mean, we have this like internal Slack group of a bunch of like our like member listeners, and they all like were you know buying it and going down to the store and do. I mean, yeah, that's cool. Yeah, huge, huge Noah heads. That's cool because barbers, you know, it's been a part of my life forever, and it's always fun to be able to like touch something where you don't change it. Like we didn't do anything. We didn't do much, right? We well, you elevate it. That's the cool part. Is tiny yeah. little alteration, a fabric choice or a color choice. That's all, it's really all, that's really all Barber needs, right? It's such a good product that you don't have to do much to like make it like interesting again. 
right? Yeah. It's such a, yeah, it's, it's so well done already. You just drop a little something in and it's like, okay, cool. We're good. <laughs> yeah. You know? True. True. Show some restraint. Well, thanks again so much. Uh, I, I, I really appreciate your time. Oh, thanks, man. I appreciate it. Yeah, thank you. I'll talk to you soon. All right. Have a good weekend. All right, you too. Bye. You've been listening to Blamo. Our show is produced by Blamo Media. Our associate producer is Jason Schwimmer. Maddie Franklin is in your DMs and running our socials, and Brendan Finn edits the show. Theme music, as always, by the mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder. You can find us on Instagram at Blamo Podcast and do us a favor, leave a review on whatever app you're listening to us on right now. If you can't stop and need all the hot content, join us on Patreon for tons of exclusive episodes, a private Slack group, merch hookups, and all the fun you can ever imagine. Thank you so much, and we'll see you in two weeks. Have a good holiday.